All right. How's everybody doing? And y'all, I'll just tell you, y'all are a lot more lively than nine was. I mean, I had to get them hyped up. I mean, it was really, you guys, man, and, and how can you not get in a good mood with Dave and Sarah up here? Just cute. Y'all could be in a little TV show. Honey. Oh, I loved it. It was fantastic. Man, I, I tell you what, it just thinking about ACOA, and it really does tie into where we are uh, in the just idea of the kingdom of God kind of returning to this place in Jerusalem, but um, before we even get to that, you know, a lot of people have asked us as the church grows and as we expand, you know, what's our expansion plan? You know, how are we going to have campuses? Are we going to, you know, what is, you know, I see churches do this, that, or the other, um, you know, and we've had some answers to those questions, but one of the, the clear answers we got uh, just straight from God was um, having our partnership with ACOA because instantaneously we've got the uh, ability and the resources as a, you know, a, not the biggest tribe. Uh, and not the biggest church, but to plant churches, and not just plant one. I mean, our plan, our plan is not just, like, I think y'all are going to blow this away, blow this out of the water, and we're going we're gonna to have to figure out, okay, what are we going to do? We're gonna, I guess we're going to plant two churches, um, because that is how we're going to expand the kingdom of God. As a church, you know, our, you know we're, if we're inviting anyone and everyone into the unending ocean of grace that comes through Jesus, there's anyone's and everyone's in North Africa. There's anyone's and everyone's across the globe, and we've got an opportunity right now as a church to plant a church for people to be a part of a, commu- like a, a community that holds the word of God out, and it actually changes communities. I love that it's the centerpiece of what happens at Ocoa Refuge, that all of this stuff that they want to see change, the gender-based violence, the people that are having to sell their bodies to take care of their kids, all of those things they want to, they want to be a part of. But they, they know that planting churches is going to create an, a community that is the hands and feet of Jesus, that that becomes, that the church is the rescue mission, that the church is a place, it's, a re, it's not just a place where you come and sip coffee, it's, it's, a, it's a place where you get healed. And that's our hope for this place is that you would walk in here not just to hear a good message, to sing some songs, but that there would be healing, that there would be something that, that would transform in the heart. I mean, we come in, it's like we smile a lot. We walk in, shake hands. Hey, brother, how you doing? Hope you're doing good. I got a coffee too. I'm glad they got the coffee back in there. That's great. <laughs> but really, we come in and it's, in many ways, even in our world, we live way, way different in the West, but it is, in many ways, there's a war going on. There's a spiritual war going on, um, and that's really um, what's happening here in Ezra chapter 7. We're in our Come and Listen series. If you got your Bible, uh, turn with me. Uh, we're going to start in verse 6, um, but when you think about Ezra, he, he's the, the author of both of these books. They were actually written as one book, Ezra and Nehemiah, um, and you don't even hear about, he's, think about it. He's writing a story about himself, but he, he doesn't even get to his part of the story until we get to chapter 7, and the amount of years that's passed is, you know, into the 70 and 80 years range in terms of what he's writing about. But this is where Ezra enters the story. In verse 6 it says, this Ezra came up from Babylon. Now, I, I, I'm stopping there just because it says came up from Babylon because we haven't talked about Babylon in a while in the Come and Listen series. But I want to remind us very quickly of what Babylon represents what Babylon was and what it's continued to be in terms of in our mind when we think about Babylon. Uh, Babylon then was the center of the world in the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire. It's where, the, you know, that's where everything happened. It was the center of culture. It was the center of art. It was the dispersion of no particular religion. It was pagan culture at 
at its high point. It was everything you could imagine. And when you think about Babylon, there's other cities that we have in, in our current world. I mean, I mean, David Gray sang about it in Babylon. Um, Central London, he's talking about. Um, and it's, that, that was considered Babylon, not for good or bad reasons, but because of the diversity of the culture, because of you know, what was achievable there, what could happen there. New York City's been considered Babylon. Um, it, it represents something on planet Earth. Um, and Ezra is coming from Babylon. We currently live in a culture that we could call Babylon in the way that it's transitioned and changed over the years. So Ezra's coming from Babylon, coming from the center of the Persian Empire, and he's headed to Jerusalem. And this tells you who he is. He is a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked for the hand of the Lord uh, his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including the priests, the Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So you get a picture that Ezra's going back to Jerusalem. He's a teacher of the law, and he's going back. He's got a posse. He's going back with a lot of people. And then you, you get that he's under the favor of the, the current Persian king, Artaxerxes. And we don't quite know why. And as you um, continue... Uh, Ezra shows up in Jerusalem. Now, this is a, just so you know, this is a summary. And when you get to chapter 8, it's going to sound like it's retelling the story. But really, it's going back to the, this same spot in chapter 7 and telling it in more detail. It'll give you the journey, actually what happened uh, to Ezra on his, way, uh, on his way there. So it says um, in verse 8, Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month, uh, which is actually August. I know that sounds strange, but fifth month of the seventh year of the king, which is 458 BC. If some of you in the Come and Listen series love to keep track of all the dates, there's another date for you. Um, he had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. So how many months did he travel? Anybody paying attention? Wake up! Four months. All right. For the gracious hand of his God, I gotcha, it's good. For the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to listen to this. Ezra devoted himself. This is who he was and why he was actually going back to Jerusalem. Devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord. Observance of the law of the Lord. That's, he lived it. He didn't just study it. He lived the word. He didn't just study the word. He lived the word. And what did he do? And he was teaching it, its decrees and its laws to Israel. So he studied it. Studied the word, he lived the word, and he taught the word. Study, live, teach. Keep that in your mind as we go through this. Now, I want to read this uh, other passage down at the bottom, verses 27 and 28, because it really caps where we're headed today and kind of the idea of who God is in this story. Because I think when you're thinking about why would Artaxerxes, the Persian, you know, the Persian king, the Persian emperor, send this guy Ezra? You know, he, the, he obviously knew who he was. He knew that he was good at... Um, the, uh, the law of the Lord, the, the, uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, this, this thing that he had held so true to his heart, Artaxerxes sent him back. But why? Listen to this. It says, Blessed be God, the God of our fathers, who put it in the mind of the king. So why, why did Artaxerxes do it? God put it in the mind of the king. To what? To beautify the temple of God in Jerusalem, to reinstall this Jewish culture, this God culture. Not only that, he caused the king and all of his advisors and influential officials to actually to like me. I love this. And back me. Um, and my God was on my side and I was ready to go. And I organized all the leaders of Israel to go with me. 
So it's an interesting start. You've got this guy, Ezra. He's leaving Babylon. He's being sent by the king, Artaxerxes, many, many years later. So he was considered a scribe. That's how he was, became known in Babylon. He was a scribe, uh, which kind of makes you think he was just a guy, like a secretary that took down notes and wrote stuff when people talked in a room, you know, and they had him around to do stuff. But a scribe back then uh, was a, like a trained lawyer. Um, he, was a, he was somebody that would, he knew, he knew the, the, the Torah so well that he was the person that you would ask. Just like you would consult an attorney on case law, uh, that's, that's how you would go and address somebody like Ezra. And he was really being commissioned as a, somebody that was in the political realm. I know we think of, if you've been around Bible world for a long time, you think Nehemiah was the business guy that had contacts and connections and could network, and he was going to get the wall built around Jerusalem after it had been, been destroyed. And Ezra is the priest guy that read the word of the law, and, but he actually was being sent and commissioned as the governor of the province by Artaxerxes. He was sent to be a political mover and shaker, not just to ha- hold church, but to go in and steal the laws. That's what, that's what this law would do. The, the law was different than the way that we read the Bible now. Like when, when you and I read uh, the, the word of God, it's, it's different in terms of the way that it dictates our, the way that we live. But for them... It, it infiltrated government. It infiltrated everything um, very publicly. It was the way that they decided what laws they were going to have, how they, they were going to do community together. It dictated everything, and he was going to be the guy that put it in place. Um, and when you look at it, you, you see in this passage also a letter right smack dab in the middle, the letter of Artaxerxes, which is a basically it's his commissioning. It's saying this guy's going to go and here's all the stuff that he gets to go with. Like I'm going to send Ezra and he's going to go with this amount of priests, this amount of workers, this amount of guys to protect him on his journey. We're going to go to the, the place where, because the, the temple was raided back in the Babylonian empire and they still had all the stuff. He's like, let's go get all the stuff where the temple got raided. We'll give it to him. Ezra's going to go back with that. They're going to reinstall the whole temple system in, in full force. Now, here's, here's the reason that, that God was sending Ezra. We know, like Artaxerxes, the, the king, he just, for whatever reason, Ezra had favor with him because God is sovereign. I mean, God allowed, like, just, just as Ezra said, like God allowed in the mind of the king for him to send me back and reinstall this God culture. And, but, but, but why? Why did this even need to happen? Well, if you think about it, You've got 60, uh, 70 years of exile, right, before we even enter into this zone. And then, as Dave said last week, there was 15 years where people were just kind of working on themselves. They were just kind of, they had forgotten about God. They had forgotten the, 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 reason, the, 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 the nature of being back in Jerusalem and what that meant for them. And they just started working on their own houses. They started working on their own lives. They had become individualistic. And they did that for 15 years. And then when they finally got back to building the temple. It took them 58 years because they saw such opposition because they were still in a virtually Babylonian culture. They were surrounded by Persians, Babylonians, and people that were, had, were of Jewish descent but really didn't care much about the temple being built because they had grown up generation after generation with Babylonian culture. So it's, it's like sometimes you think of when you read, when you zoom out of scripture and you're like, well, you know, it's just going to go back to normal. They're going to come in, they're going to build the temple, and the Jews get to start being Jews again, and it's going to be great. Well, it wasn't that easy because the whole culture had changed. I mean, imagine, you know, for us, you've got, that, that, was, that was the big problem that existed. These people were meant to be 
God's people. Way back in Genesis, God, God told Abraham, he says, you, these people, you know, he was telling, he said, your, your family is going to be a nation. Look at, the, look at the sky, the stars up in the sky. That's going to be a, a nation that's going to come from you. And they will be my people and I will be their God. I will be the one that marks them. Just like Moses said when he was coming, you know, getting closer to the promised land. He'd had an experience with, you know, with the Almighty. And God had stuck him in the cleft of the rock and said, you can, can't see my face, but you can pass by me. And he was glowing like a light bulb. They had to put a, a veil on him for him to come down the mountain and see everybody. And he's, he's coming down the mountain, but he's talking to God saying, hey, I want to make sure that this spirit that's on me, this spirit that's here, that it goes with us as a people. There's two million of us. We need your spirit. We don't want to go. And he, he says it very clearly in Exodus 33. He says, we don't want to go if you're not with us, if your spirit's not with us. We want to be marked by you. How will, and this is what he says at the, the end of that statement in that prayer to God. How will people know who we are? What will distinguish us? What will set us apart from all other people? And this was the problem that existed in Jerusalem at the time. It wasn't really Jerusalem in the way that they thought about it. It was still just saturated fully with Babylon. Because think about just 50 years in our culture of change. Like there's things that, that have momentous change in our culture, like that instantaneously change things. September 11th, today, you look at 9-11, instantaneously it changed the way that we live, the way that we do life, the perception of safety, where our position in the world as Americans changed instantaneously, like culture changes. You've got uh, I mean, the death of Queen Elizabeth, that's like an era gone by. I mean, she was, I think, installed in 58, I mean, as the political figurehead, as the queen. And what an amazing life she lived as a Christian, um, you know, on a throne and instituting the things that she, inst I mean, just amazing legacy that she leaves. That's culture change. But most culture changes over time. It's like this, it's this, this thing that we look back and we're like, I can't believe this is where we are after 50 years. I mean, you think about the things that have changed you know, in 50 years in our culture. I mean, for, for me, just even growing up, I'm 51 yesterday. Yes, thank you. Happy birthday. Um, but I, I mean, there's no more phones on walls. I mean, that's what I grew up with, you know. You know, who's, who's, who are you calling, right? It's phones in your pocket. I mean, that is crazy. I mean, I think about... Uh, social interaction has changed so dramatically. I mean, in the way that, like, you don't call anybody up and go ask them how they're doing because you know how they're doing, right? I mean, social media. It's like people go, oh, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I heard you went to Paris. I know you went to Paris. I actually saw the inside of your hotel room. You showed it to all of us, right? Um, we, we, do, it's just, we just live life. I mean, our social behavior in general, I mean, I think about is, is so different. My kids ask me questions about, like, what do you, you know, how do, what was your Friday? How are your Friday nights? I mean, we still do Friday night lights, go to football games and do that stuff with our kids that we did. But on a regular basis, the way that we connect with one another online has changed everything. I mean, my kids are like, what did you do? Were you not bored? Like at the end of like, there's, there was like two channels on your TV and there was, you had no self. What did you do? And I'm like, we went to McDonald's. I mean, we did. We went to McDonald's. My kids were like, that is so lame. You went to McDonald's? And we're like, yeah, but there was, there was 150 kids all at McDonald's because there was nothing to do. I mean, there was nothing to do. She was laughing in the first one. I looked at her and I was like, I saw you at McDonald's. That's right. I don't think we met at McDonald's, but you had eyes for me at McDonald's. Um, I'm kidding. Totally joking. I'm definitely, yeah, that's ruined it for my whole day, hasn't it? Yeah, I can see it. 
but culture changed. I mean, the things that has changed, I mean, dating certainly has changed. I mean, I'll leave that there. Um, uh, we'll just swipe right. Um, TV has changed. Sorry, that was a bad one. Uh, TV's changed. I mean, you got streaming and online, endless channels. Uh, retail stores are almost gone. I mean, I know the town center's still there, but good, good, goodness gracious. Everybody shops on Amazon. Uh, talking has replaced texting. I mean, we had records, and records were replaced by tapes, and then tapes were replaced by CDs, and CDs were replaced by MP3s and Napster. That's what I did. Um, this is free movie or free TV or free uh, music. And then we've got streaming again. Um, and then college football used to only be on Saturdays. And now it's pretty much all day, every day, right? Uh, which is amazing cultural change. Um, but there's, there's, uh, there's things that have happened in our culture. I mean, I was thinking about, I was reading this whole list and those, those things were on it. One of the things that was on the list was there was no kids sports on Sunday or on Wednesday night. Which, you know, as a, as a pastor, I'm like, I definitely want to say that, you know. But, I'm, I mean, my kids did, did that. I remember leaving church and, you know, when my kids were playing recreational sports and, and having a buzz to a, a soccer game or something. It's just one of those slow cultural changes that's happened. We were in a position so many years ago where just Christian values affected so much of who we were as people. I mean, our country was founded on Christian values, and I know it's had its problems over the years, but... There certainly was this foundation that I think all of us rested in for so many years and didn't have to worry about. But now things have changed. We are in a post-Christian culture. And we, we might say, okay, we're in the Bible Belt. But if you, I mean, if you really look at who we are and what slowly has happened for us, our, our, the issues that we're dealing with are so similar to the issues in this ancient text where Ezra was coming in to this situation saying, I'm the guy that's, that's called to study the word. I'm the guy that's called to live it out and to teach it to this culture because we need to reinstitute. We need to change. We need to, these, this, these people, by the spirit of God and by the power of his word, these people need to once again be marked by a God culture. And for us, I think we are in the same position. Because for us, I mean, I just read an article where it says in the Bible Belt, the Bible Belt has pretty much gone away. There really is no Bible Belt. We still consider it the Bible Belt because we know which cities and which states exist in the Bible Belt. But the statistics on the post-Christian culture in the Bible Belt um, are crazy. And there's, men, there's, there's a group of cities that are listed and to be qualified to be listed as a post-Christian city or a city that's just kind of lost. It doesn't have that foundational... Christian belief that, that overwhelmed that particular city anymore. It says many cities in the Bible Belt are, are considered at the top of the list, um, the list for being post-Christian or defined as post-Christian. For cities or states to qualify as post-Christian in this particular survey, individuals must be at least, um, it must meet at least nine criteria. And some of those criteria are believing in God, not or not believing in God, not attending church in the past six months, uh, and disagreeing that the Bible is accurate. So they had this whole list of things that uh, they asked in this survey of people living in these states. And these were broad, sweeping, large number uh, surveys. And among, when, they, when they tallied who these cities were, among the top are the following. Dallas, Texas. And look at here. Jacksonville, Florida. Raleigh, Atlanta, Norfolk, Knoxville, Tennessee, Baton Rouge, Charleston. I mean, all across the South uh, where the Bible Belt is. All, these are among the Bible Belt cities that saw 
a large increase in post-Christian culture. Uh, the article went on to say that over in, in the last decade, from uh, the, these, these last 10 years, the, the same type of post-Christian culture that existed on the West Coast and the Northeast, which were considered the, the most non-Christian, just really weren't affected by um, their faith at all, um, at West Coast and the Northeast. It's, we're now at that same level here in the Southeast over 10 years. And I think about it, we've been, you know, we, we moved into this building in 2015, but a few years before that, we did some statistical analysis just to figure out if we even wanted to plant a church uh, anywhere in Jacksonville and whether it was worthwhile to plant one down at the beach because there's, you know, you see church steeples here and church here and a church there. And, you know, why in the world another church? Um, but we realized that there's, you know, back then there was about 65,000 people on the island. I like to call it an island because it makes me feel good. But from Mayport all the way down to Ponte Vedra Beach, 65,000 people. Now that's in the 80s somewhere. I mean, it's rapidly increased from 2019 to today. I think COVID had something to do with a lot of people moving here. Um, but the statistics for the amount of people that go to church has not changed. Back you know, years ago when we first did the, the survey and, and figured out kind of statistically how many people went to church, it was around 15,000 went to church out of the six. That's 50,000 people that really didn't have a faith community, which didn't necessarily mean that they're not a Christian, but we do see that correlation is that people that, you know, that go to church, um, Jesus loved the church, gave his life up for the church. So the people that go to church are people that love Jesus. So we can kind of make that correlation, um, not for everybody, but just for, you know, a, a big chunk of people. So that's 50,000 people. We thought, okay, we are definitely planting a church. Um, and the number of people that are engaged in church really hasn't changed, but the amount of people has. So that equals more people. So now we've got 65,000 people uh, currently in 2022 that are not engaged in a faith community just in our community. That's the amount that was on the whole island just uh, 10 years ago or so. So I say all that to say there's a decreasing number of churches meeting the need of people needing to be uh, rooted and founded in this, in this God culture. So our problem is the same. I mean, the tension today and our problem is the same as the problem that existed in ancient Jerusalem when they came back from exile and they were trying to reinstall the, this God culture. We have a problem with no consistent God culture. In fact, it's affecting the church overall. It's affecting pastors. And I'm not going to read this because I want you to feel sorry for me. I just think it makes the point. In a study of Protestant pastors conducted in March this year, by the research organization, the Barna Group, it suggested that an unprecedented numbers of pastors and church staff are thinking about quitting the ministry. The poll showed that the rates of burnout among pastors have risen dramatically during the past year with a staggering 42% of ministers wondering and considering if they should abandon their vocation altogether. Such pastors named stress, which was 56% of them, loneliness, 43%, political divisions, and on and on and on as the top reasons for why they have wearied in the job, as well as the toll it's taken on their families. Now, I'm not quitting. <laughs> I say that to say, I, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm excited because I feel like this is where, this is where we can see revival. When, the, when, we, when we feel this much heat from the enemy, um, I feel like God's getting ready to do something pretty extraordinary in and through our church, in and through the churches in this community. Um, and this is the time where you stick. This is the time where we come together and we don't divide. This is the time when we focus on what it looks like to be a faith community. And if you go back and look at verse 10, and I'm going to read this in the message because I, I like the way that it, it, uh, 
um, it translates. It says that Ezra, he had committed himself as the person that was going to carry the banner, not of just being the preacher guy, not of just, you know, being the guy that's, you know, you know, helping church people get back to church. This is, he was instituting and coming back to create a way of life and change culture. Ezra had committed himself to studying the revelation of God, to living it and teaching Israel to live its truths and its ways. To study, to live, and to teach. To study, to live, and to teach. That's what he did. That's what he wanted. He wanted the same thing that Moses wanted. He says, I want the spirit of God. I want this God culture to go with us. I want this thing. This is the thing that will distinguish us from all other people. And I think for us right now in the society that we live in and the place that we live in, again, you know me. If you've been here long enough, I'm not this separatist that thinks we should move off into the hills and be completely, you know, separate and kind of figure out how to live life and, and, and be a weird cult. But we are in a place where biblical worldview has deteriorated and we are, we are the, the ambassadors, we are the Jesus people that carry that biblical worldview. And at the centerpiece of that is Jesus himself. So I'm going to ask this question and we're going to quickly go through and, and talk about it and answer these, this, this question. Why does having a biblical worldview matter on Monday? Certainly it matters on Sunday because we're all here, you know. You're going to open your Bible. We're going to read and talk about biblical worldview on Sunday. But why does it matter? Why does you and I, in our mind, having a biblical worldview matter? And when I say biblical worldview, I just mean a, where Scripture, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, who we are as a believer, defines how we live and make decisions in real life. How we raise our kids, how we operate at our jobs, how we interact in our friendships. Why does having a biblical worldview matter on Monday or Wednesday or Friday or Friday night, right? Why does it matter that we have a biblical worldview? Number one, it sets us apart from the world. Now, sometimes I, 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 I don't even want to use those words. It sets us apart. Because it makes us feel like, oh, we're going to be set apart and we're better than everybody else. It's not, it's not against, but apart. It doesn't set us against the rest of the world. I think that's the, the problem that's existed in Christian communities in, in the last 10 years. You know, we, you, you get lumped into this idea that, yeah, it's this side against this side or this group of people. And Christian values, we, we often take biblical worldview and we lump it into a pot with a political party. And Jesus is a whole lot different and a whole lot better and a whole lot smarter than politics. And we often get dropped in there and say, oh, this, this is the biblical worldview party and this is the non-biblical worldview party. I, I say, the heck with both of those. And we're gonna, we're gonna be in the Jesus party because Jesus liked to party, right? Um, sorry, y'all get that one for free. Nine didn't get that one. Um, but, but we wanna be set apart as people. We want to be set apart. But what does that mean? You know, how does that, how does that play out in Scripture? Well, Paul says it to the, to the Roman church. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as, living, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. And he says, do not be conformed to this age. Some of you um, have a different translation, and it's... It, says a bunch of different things about what it looks like to conform to this age. But do not conform to this age. In other words, don't be pulled into the Babylonian context that you're in. It's going to be very easy to, because this is who you live around. This is who you, 
you know, you work around. These are the people that you're around. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. But what, what does that mean? Because that feels like separatist language. It feels like, oh, we've got to, you know, move off to Montana. We're all going to get on a plane. We're going to wear bonnets. And, you know, we're not going to drink Coca-Colas. And we're going to be weird. But that's not what it means. It means that we're going to, we are going to set ourselves apart from the world in the way that we do. We are rooted and grounded in biblical truth. So we, what? We, we know that there's a better way. Before we were followers of Jesus, just like Colossians 3 says, since you've been raised with Christ, you have, a diff- you have different eyesight. It says right at the top of Colossians 3. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your heart, set your mind, set your soul on things above, not on the things of the earth. So it's this idea that we're, we live different. We see things differently. We're not completely grounded and rooted in all of the stuff down here. This isn't where our foundation is. This isn't what is saving us or rescuing us. We once moved and worked and lived in the pattern of this world, but now we've got another option. We can walk towards life instead of walk towards death. That's what Jesus has done for us. So it's a better way. How does that play play out in life? I was thinking about this. Like there's... Have you ever had those moments where you, somebody just does, like you've been doing this thing the, the same way and it's, you know, you, it's, it's, it is what it is and it's, it works okay and then somebody shows you a new way to do it and it's awesome and you're like, how have I not known this is genius? You know, I was at Home Depot the other day and I was cruising around, I was talking to uh, one of the guys that works there, which is very hard to do because they run away from you. I don't know if you have that experience at Home Depot, you're like, where are you going? Got the orange vest. And they're like, you know, not wanting to help you. I don't know how, like, how do you have a job? Sorry, I could go on and get on my thing. But I was talking to a guy who's really nice, and I was talking about Tapcon screws, which are the ones that go into concrete, you know, and like how I hate them. Like, I can't, I've, I always screw them up. Some of you might be great at Tapcons. I just, I'll drill the hole, and then I drill it too big, and then my screw kind of falls out. And this guy overhears me, and he comes by and says, hey, man, I overheard your conversation. This is such dude stuff in Home Depot. And he says, <laughs> Take some 12-gauge wire, and you wrap it into like a little spring, and you just twist it in the hole, drill your Tapcon screw. It won't ever come out. And I was like, genius. And I went home, and I did it, and it worked. It was so awesome. I mean, it's so amazing. There's a better way to live um, with Tapcons. And, and if, if you get what I'm saying in life, I mean, ladies, you probably have your version of that. I don't know. Have you ever seen a girl? She does like, she gets her hair done a certain way and has a little thing. She's like, have you ever used one of these magical things on the hair? Oh, it's good. And you're like, whoa. Sorry, I shouldn't even added that because it's terrible. But there's a better way. There's a better way to live. And I think for us, it's not about judging the rest of the world. It's being able to say we are anchored to the hope of the world, Jesus and so when it, when it, when it comes to our, the, the way that we live, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to life, when it comes to the way that, that we work and the things that we do, there's these moments in, in which we can glorify Jesus. We can shine a big, bright, beautiful light on Jesus because he's shown us a better way to live. How do we set ourselves apart? Well, we look at things from a different perspective. Look in our culture. There's so many questions. When you're born into this world, there's going to be questions about what it looks like to date, what it looks like. What, what human sexuality looks like? What does gender look like? All these questions are just rising up left and right in our culture. How do we live? What decisions? What's right? What's wrong? How do we live? What's the best way? Jesus, who created it all. Jesus, who breathed it into existence, it says in uh, Colossians chapter 1. You know, he, he, Before the foundations of the earth, he was the one. He was the active force in creation. He knows how it works best. Why don't we ask 
him. We are the Jesus people. We are the ones with the biblical worldview, the, the very words of God that are, are breathing in us. And we understand how that works. It's not that we're judging anyone else. It's that we're, we are the people that somebody else has been screwing up the wall, like just messing it up and can't figure out how to get it to stay there. And you're coming along and going, hey, you know what? It might work better this way. And we get to be those people because God has set us apart. Number two, because it helps us know how to live. This, this goes right along. How does this happen? Well, because it helps us to know how to live. We need a biblical worldview. You and I do. In Romans 12, too, if we go back to that, it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't conform. But what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve or some of your translations or discern what the will of God is. We need a biblical worldview. It, it takes time. Like this idea of transformation and the transforming of the mind. This is where it, we get to that place of Ezra. Ezra did what? He studied the word. Then he lived the word. And then he taught the word. It's what we do together in community in the church. This is how we train. This is where sanctification happens. This isn't about us knowing how to do things better than everybody else. It's that we're, we're a work in progress. As we become Christians, as we become followers of Jesus, we don't know how to do it all right. And the Bible's not a manual that, that we flip through and can find it in an instant and just lazy, just go, oh yeah, let me figure out how to, how to date. And then we'll go to page whatever, and that's going to tell us. But as we grow, as we mature in our faith, all of a sudden those decisions change in our mind and in our heart, the way that we do things, the way that we live life, if we know who we are in Christ because of who he is, if we understand the gospel, that changes so much about who we are. Think about dating. Like if you think about just, just simply dating, if I, if I understand that because of who Jesus is, he, he, not only did he take me from death to life, he, he, he brought me from spiritual death into life. In that whole process, the person that I was died with Christ in his death, and a new person comes to life. Who is that new person? The one that's approved of by God. Like, God doesn't look at me and think, well, I'm going to stack up your past. I'm going to stack up all the wrongs that you've done, all the talented things you've done, and we'll figure out how much you're worth. No, he, he, he shows that I'm of infinite worth by dying on the cross for me. So I'm approved of. So I'm, that's my starting place in, in every conversation and everything that I do that I'm approved of. I don't have to elicit the, 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 that you people like me. Jesus loves me, the king of the universe. So somebody that goes into a date... You know, if you're a young lady or a, a dude or whoever, you go and you sit down and then the evaluation process changes, doesn't it? Now we have a different filter. It's showing us how to live. If the guys, I think sometimes we just settle. I mean, I've worked in college ministry long enough to sit down with ladies and, and, and all of a sudden it's like a, you know, yeah, he's a, he's a dirt bag, but he likes me. You know, I mean, that was the sum total of the conversation. It's a lot longer conversation because girls use more words. But that's what I come, come away with. Okay, he's a dirtbag, but he likes you. He tells you you're pretty sometimes. But when you are loved by the king, when you understand the gospel, when you see the cross clearly, when you understand this, when you've studied the word, which is how we get to know Jesus and who he is and how much he loves us, and we live it, and then we actually get to the point, at some point in our life, where we get to pass it on and teach it. When we do those things, then we understand in every conversation that we're in. Every momentous thing that's happening in our lives, there's a filter. There's no manual. There's a spiritual filter that God develops through his word when we have this biblical worldview. 
Friendships, it's the same thing. Like when I was just thinking about it, just it's, it's such a huge thing. Friendships matter. Who you're friends with matters. How you dictate, how you decide who those people will be. And again, it's not a separatist thing. It's just, it's the true thing that you will become who your friends are. That's the culture that will be in your life is who you, if you're, you know, if you hang out with four broke friends, you will be the fifth. I mean, your mama was right. I mean, when she's worried about who you gonna hang out with, that's exactly truth. You will become the measure of your friends. That's what happens. Social proximity. The people that you hang out with the most, they're, they're gonna be the ones that affect you the most, the, the ones that, you, that, you're, that you're connected to. How does this change who we are? What, is it, what, is it, what does it do? How do we get this compass that we're talking about here? What is, you know, when we're lo- looking at biblical worldview, how does it help us how to live? Well, it puts us in that place where we have a compass and raising our kids and what it looks like to, to, to shepherd our own, our own kids, to, to ask questions, to have people around us. You know, I think about the beauty of the community of believers that's, that's here. There's many people um, that I know in this church that had marriages that had no hope. And I'm talking about like at the, at the place where even if you're, if you're a hopeful person, you go, yeah, that one's over. And God just resurrected them from the dead. And now they're the people that other people are going to to go, hey, how do I navigate this? How do I navigate my marriage? How do I navigate dating? How do I navigate uh, engagement? How do I navigate life? And they're, they're, they're shocked. They're like taking deep, they're like, I cannot believe we're the people that people come to. But by the grace of God and by the, the beautiful, defining biblical worldview that has happened by, by the power of God and by the power of the church. And that leads me to my last thing is that, number three, it unites us as a collective and not individuals. We live in an individualistic culture. Individualistic cultures are those that stress the needs of an individual over the needs of the group as a whole. This is, what, this is where we live. This is our Babylon. In this type of culture, people are seen as independent, autonomous, social, um, social behavior tends to be dictated by attitudes and preferences of individuals. Cultures in North America and Western Europe tend to be individualistic. We are not a collectivist culture. Although we are made and created as human beings, if you study social psychology, as collectivist people. But our culture has leaned towards individualism, meism. I want to be autonomous. I want to do everything for myself. I want to create a world for myself. Dave beautifully talked about that last week. But Jesus came to create a collective in and through his blood. When he poured out his blood as a sacrifice for you and me, it wasn't just so that we could go on our merry way. But it says in Ephesians 2 that he literally broke down the dividing wall of hostility, that he brought us together with his blood to unify us under one name. Different people with different attributes, with different skills, with different ethnicities, different on all fronts, but together and bound together by his blood. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, which is all about unity, he says there's one body, in one spirit, talking about the church, talking about a collective of people. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He goes on to talk about 
the, the foundations of the church with the apostles and the prophets, that we would study the word, that we would study the word, that we would live the word, and that we would teach it to one another so that we wouldn't be tossed back and forth by the waves of any teaching, that we wouldn't be pulled away into Babylon, into a world that takes us out and takes us away and slowly pushes us into the place of not looking any different than anyone else and missing out on the benefit of the collective of the church. You know, when I think about even just simply what it means to be a part of a church, I mean, it, it, and you can attend a church, I mean, and that's, that's okay. I mean, if you've made it in here and you're, you know, it hasn't become a, a collective yet, it hasn't become a family yet, that's okay. But the intention is not that it stays that way because we believe that church is a place that you belong, like a family, not attend. And the reason is because God in and through the church displays himself. Like that nagging existential itch that we all have of like, what, what is it that we're looking for in life? And many, many, many of the things that we're looking for, they, in a broken way, God does it through the church, culminates. Like we get, we get to a glimpse of who Jesus is in and through each other because there's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Like the encouragement that I need. The, the things that, that are, I'm lacking. Now, that doesn't mean you put the weight of all you need on an individual and say, you need to save me. No, Jesus saves. But we, we get that in and through people. You'll never be alone in a collective. I mean, there's some crazy people you have to put up with, but you'll never be alone. I mean, I think about one of the things I learned being kind of out of my house during our renovation, suffering for Jesus out of my house, getting my house renovated. Uh, I still feel guilty about it, but... Um, we were gone for eight and a half months and the first, the longest stretch we were, we were living with people, uh, the Darren and Kathleen Byinger. Um, and you know, people ask me all the time, like, how are you doing? You know, that must be hard. You're living with another family. Aren't you ready to get back in your house? And I honestly, um, it's one of the best times in my life. And I, you never would think it. And I, it made me realize that God built us to be together. Every time I would come home from work and it was a tough day or they would come home from work and it was a tough day, we would all just sit down like an extended family and talk. We'd talk about our kids, how knuckleheaded they were, how wonderful they were, um, and just the, the future. And I was going through some of the toughest, I'm still in, in the middle of that, just, you know, health crisis. I mean, I've got this neurological disorder, this thing that just bothers me all the time. And I didn't need to be alone. And God knew right at that time I needed the collective. I needed my people. And then my dad unexpectedly passed away in March, um, which was so hard. I didn't, I wasn't, wasn't expecting it. And instead of walking into my house, and I know it's great, my, my family unit, my wife and my kids are wonderful and beautiful, but God knew I needed, I needed them. I needed my collective. I needed you people. A lot of you people showed up in force at my dad's funeral and, did the tomahawk chop with me because he was such an FSU fan. And it's just, I just, I plead with you. This is the place where we need to stay in proximity to one another. This, this house of Jesus, because that's who we're about. That's what this is all about. We love Jesus here. And he's the one that unifies us. He's done it by stretching out his arms and bleeding out on Mount Calvary. And he had a plan that just, I, every day it surprises me, all of the things that this did. 
It provided a place for me in a time in my life with a bunch of people like you to, to heal my soul in one of the hardest times of my life. Just a, just a fringe benefit of the Savior of the world doing what the Savior of the world does. And I would just say, if you don't know Jesus, this is, this is your moment to know Jesus. You might have all kinds of doubts about who he is, but he is alive and he's in this room and he's why this strange bunch of people, this collective, like I got friends in here that would never be my friends outside the church. And that's no offense to them, it's just happened. And I love them more than anything. So if you don't know Jesus, he's the centerpiece to what we study, to what we live, and what we teach and breathe and sing and celebrate with one another. Get to know him. Don't walk out the door without saying, just looking up and saying, God, if you're real, now and he will it's crazy he will he'll start speaking to you